Hi, this is Burton Cody. And this is Casey Mitchum. This is the Bullet Time Action Podcast, bringing you the finest in action commentary. And this is our first episode about Arnold Schwarzenegger's The Last Stand. Ah, The Last Stand. Arnold Schwarzenegger's return to cinema. Well, uh, at least in a starring role. How long has it been? Uh, I believe it's been 10 years. His last starring role was probably Terminator 3. I wouldn't count any of the Expendables movies. Those were more or less... Cameos. Extended, yeah, extended cameos. And even then, like, winking, nodding cameos of, like, he's playing himself in those movies. Yeah, not that he wasn't in many of his starring vehicles of yesteryear, but those cameos 100% rely on his already established image and his image then as the governor of california um and well i want to introduce this one a little bit um actually let me introduce ourselves first uh so we decided to do this podcast because uh, our our friendship was began essentially by action movies and our mutual love of these sorts of just strange uh you know subgenres of action uh, we love kung fu westerns War movies, bullet ballets, you name them, we've probably quoted a line from every one of them to each other. Yeah. Um, we love the... Uh, any sort of minutiae involved. Um, the choreography, the way things are assembled, the blocking for all you directing nerds out there. Um, the editing, the editing is so important. The stuntmen and women... Yes, or... Uh, the the unsung heroes of these movies. Very much so. The, the lighting crew. Um, <laughs> just the way something looks, the aesthetics. This is a film. It is, it is an art. Um, Even though it's considered sometimes considered the lowliest of the art. Uh, especially as far as movies go, unfortunately. Um, like actually, these are never going to be movies that are going to be considered for major awards. Sometimes. I mean, if we talk about something like The Searchers, oh, or, sure. or uh, even The Matrix that won four Academy Awards. Hey, shout, I mean, shout out to the Oscars uh, this weekend. Hey, hey. But primarily, things that are going to be relegated to, even, even at their best, to the direct-to-video or like DVD bargain bins in most places... Yeah, we have our Seagulls. I really don't think Steven Seagal is going to get a Lifetime Achievement Award. <laughs> he has one in my heart. Yeah, uh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, yes, uh, along with uh, the sort of details that make up a great action sequence, we do love many of the stars. Absolutely. Uh, of course, we have Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, we probably will be from time to time talking about Jackie Chan. I, myself, am a devoted fan, follower of the Church of Chan. And uh, from there, finding names like Sammo Hung, Young Bu. Uh, many of the women involved, uh, Sammo Hung's wife, Joyce Gabdenzi. Uh, one of my favorites, Michiko Nishiwaki. Cynthia Rothrock. And so on and so forth. There's just... You I'm name it, we'll nerd out about it later. Yes. Promise. <laughs> Promise. Uh, and this won't be a podcast necessarily about the most generic movies that are just out there. It will, it's not going to be like, you know, us geeking out over Independence Day or uh, Armageddon or something. It might. It might be. <laughs> it might be. Even Armageddon is a movie 
uh, as a director. It's not as revered, but it is worth talking about. So someday we will talk about Michael Bay and his Bayisms. Maybe not in the most savory light, but he'll get his Maybe game. not, maybe not. Uh, some things are, deserve to be reassessed, so <laughs> for the future. And with, with this episode, uh, as we're still finding our sea legs for podcasting, we wanted to start with a movie that we don't necessarily have strong feelings about. Uh, this is a movie that, like so many of its so many of its brethren, opens in January, which is the uh, film opening dead zone. Like you, you can always tell what a stu- what movie a studio is going to be invested in because if it's a big action movie, it's going to come out in the summertime. It's it's a blockbuster. It's meant to be seen by a huge crowd after you know after uh, Veterans Day. Um, typically, this time of year, we get the Paul Blarts. Um. <laughs> Which cleaned up at the box office. It did, because there was absolutely nothing else to see. I, it is from about January, I will say like New Year's Day, maybe the day after, until about mid-March. It is kind of a movie dead zone. Nothing it like pre- the studios, they, wanna, they don't want to bring out their big guns yet. Which is perfectly reasonable. Sure. I mean, this is running up against what? The Super- Did this open the same weekend as the Super Bowl? No, it was a couple weeks um, before. That was Bullet to the Head. No, this was... I think that was Bullet to the Head. Super yeah, Bowl Bullet was, what, two weeks ago? Yeah. From uh, the day of this podcast being recorded. Um... But in general, like, it, this, is, this is when movies like Daybreakers open up, which... Daybreakers. I, I mean, uh, it is true every once in a while. There is a, some sort of a sleeper hit. 20 years ago, well, 22 years ago, The Silence of the Lambs opened up in February. And we all know what that went on to do. Absolutely. Um, so everyone. So sometimes, a- sometimes a gym comes by that a studio just doesn't have faith in. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I, I'm going to start by saying that's not necessarily the case with The Last Stand. No, it, it, it is a movie that maybe doesn't deserve... I mean, there are plenty of absolute direct movies coming out in the summertime. Well, um, I guess we'll introduce a little bit about uh, the creation of this film. It's it's the first American movie by Kim Ji-woon, who is uh, a part of that new wave of Korean directors. And he's got a lot of great action movies under his credits, actually. Um, you know, he made uh, A Bittersweet Life, uh, the... Oh, yes. Movie he refers to as his uh, kimchi western, the good, the bad, and the weird, mm. um, and also uh, I saw the devil, which has gotten a lot of uh, press lately. All three with uh, Lee Byung Hoon. Might know as Storm Shadow, I believe, in the GI Joe franchise here in the states. Absolutely, and I believe he has a, I believe he's a villain in Red Two, which is coming out soon. Oh, so... that, yes, he is actually. I think I think I saw him in the trailer. Mm-hmm. So I mean, this this is a director with a really solid pedigree in his native country. Like he he can shoot a great action movie. Um, but so can you know? There's you can make the comparison of uh, Hong Kong John Woo and American John Woo. Not always and the he, same thing. Yeah, one of those things is not like the other. Yeah, sadly. And it seems like, looking at uh, information about the screenwriter, this was his first screenplay. Um, it is not David Mamet. 
let's get that out of the way. Yeah, it's a it's a Mr. Andrew Nauer, whose only other credit is something refer something called Ghost Team One. Ghost Team One. I can't say that I've seen it. Have you? No. No, Maybe we'll get around to that to another future podcast. Sure, sure. But but in, in general, this is a this is a director with a high pedigree and a first time uh, screenwriter. Uh, I particularly love uh, A Bittersweet Life. That is a great uh, revenge thriller. Actually, I think they're all revenge thrillers. Well, no, no, not uh, Good and Bad and the Weird. Good the Bad and the Weird's more of a more of a. Well, I mean, it's it's. Its style is right there in the title. It's a, it's sort of a, just an Asian takeoff of the Sergio Leone Western. Hmm. Um, but it's it's pretty spectacular at what it does. It's, uh, in this film, The Last Stand, Kim Ji-Woon's style doesn't really shine until the, uh, the final action sequence, which is very good. It is. It's the, it's the highlight of the film, and they wisely Sup- save it. Almost surprisingly good, considering all the stuff that comes before it. Almost, and we're going to get to that. Uh, how about we delve into the actual story of this film, the setup premise? Absolutely. And can we give a quick warning? Uh, there will be spoiler material. Um, so we couldn't really just pick apart this movie if if we couldn't have spoilers. And that might be have a general rule of thumb for all of our future reviews. We'll do a we'll do our best to uh, sort of limit those, especially with classics. But since this movie opened at number nine in the box office and is already out of theaters, chances are you didn't see it and you might not see it anyway. So if we can lead you in the right direction here, then we'll do our best. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we will do our best, yes. So, yeah, so uh, Mr. Schwarzenegger uh, plays a character named Ray Owens, who is this small-town sheriff at, in a in a town that borders Mexico. And, as we uh, learn slightly later in the movie, at the same time that he's just kind of running his small town, which where half the town is left to go to a big football game out of state, the FBI is trying to transport a drug kingpin named Gabriel Cortez, played by Eduardo Noriega, who you may remember as the one of the villains from Guillermo del Toro's The Devil's Backbone, uh, Classic. They're trying to trans. Absolutely, really? they're tr- they're going to transport him to a maximum security prison. But before they do that, of course, they have to introduce him as the the most dangerous drug kingpin since Pablo Escobar, because that's the only drug kingpin that American audiences will know by name. Um, really? Can you think of another one? <laughs> no. That isn't Tony Montana. Oh yeah. See, there you go. Whoa. Uh, <laughs> Real life. But, uh, and of course, he's he's broken out by his lackeys in a very Christopher Nolan-esque uh, breakout sequence that involves way too many, way too many henchmen and coincidences. Uh, overly, yes. yeah, overly elaborate coincidences and uh, giant electromagnets. That I liked about it, actually. <laughs> yeah. It needed something schlocky. It did, it did. Giant um, magnets, pretty funny. But... And then, of course, he gets it. He gets into a super fast car. And he's driving toward the border, and there's already his henchmen are already waiting for him in this small town because there's a bridge that's been built from Mexico to America that's off the map, and they don't. And the FBI doesn't even know about it, and they're and they're already underestimating this small town sheriff played by Schwarzenegger's ability to handle the situation. 
Well, uh, well, meanwhile, in Schwarzenegger's town, Noriega has another batch of mercenary henchmen who did construct this bridge. And they're led by uh, Peter Stormare, who you may remember as the sort of lunatic from Fargo, the lunatic from Minority Report, and Slippery Pete from Seinfeld. Also, uh, Satan from Constantine. And the guy in the V-dubs commercials. Yes, uh, Peter Stormare plays a Peter Stormare character. Which is to say, sometimes foreign, but in this movie also sometimes southern. He does have this absolutely strange accent that fluctuates between... I I don't know what the heck he was trying to do. It was very... (laughs) I don't know if he wanted to make his character mysterious, or maybe he was drunk during the shooting, and Kim Ji-woon just couldn't tell... He's like, he's just speaking English. I don't know. <laughs> well, and, you know, we're already kind of jumping ahead of ourselves. So we haven't given a full plot summary. Wait, wait, but, I'm just go, but, I'm, but I'm just going to go ahead and say, uh, Arnold gets on this case pretty early in the movie because the second he walks into the diner to get his coffee and his omelet, Peter Stormare already looks completely suspicious. And he's, he and his henchmen just, like, stand up and leave the bar, and Arnold's just, Already like, who are these guys? This is about three minutes into the movie. <laughs> um, and, and, and that was the strangest logic to me. Because these characters... I don't know, maybe I'm not good at police work, but I didn't feel like the strangeness of them at all was that strong. Other sure. than the fact that they were just strangers. Well, Also the fact that they don't seem to fit the demographic of people that live in this town... <laughs> No. Which is which is all very old people and young, attractive brunette women. Uh, that is a perfect way to describe it. <laughs> it's the strangest demographic in that town. I mean, granted, most of the young people left to get on the bus to go to that football game, wherever they were going, and we get a, we get a nice foreshadowing sequence of a guy telling Arnold that you know he parked his sports car in a fire lane and he's and he throws the keys around like if you got a problem with it you move it you know and it's like okay well that's going to be used later but so um the movie jumps in between Arnold and his small town uh, sheriff crew who are manned by Luis Guzman uh, and Jamie... Alex- Jamie Alexander. South yes. Carolina's own. I'm my home state. Uh, Jamie <laughs> Alexander. And uh, and another guy who gets killed really early, so he's not really worth remembering. He's young and he's impressionable and he's got big dreams. Big dreams of being a cop in L.A. like Arnold used to be. That's right. Arnold, a former, uh, we're told, a former narcotics officer who was part of a of a sting gone wrong. But he was an elite police officer. That's right. And that, that is mentioned surprisingly many, several, many times for something that never pans out to anything, really. Nah, sadly, no. Uh, it, it wasn't really necessary. I mean, maybe it was the, maybe it was the uh, screenwriter's way of just saying, hey, Arnold's been in California for about 10 years and he hasn't been around. Uh, you know, I never thought about it until right now that maybe that was a little bit of meta humor if you will they're kind of winking at us he's he's uh, come back to these small bit parts in these little movies his uh, yes his old days the days you remember him best that's right 
but yeah, he was a former drug and he was a former uh, drug cop. All of his partners died <laughs> while fighting drug cartels, so he's he's already got beef with with drug lords, and that may also play into his determination to to uh to mount the last stand and keep this drug kingpin from going back across the border. He is the last stop until they cross the quickly assembled bridge. Impressively assembled too across a canyon. Yes. Um so that is the main plot of the film. But we we jump as as I was about to say, uh, we jump from Arnold's small town to all of these overly long sequences about Forrest Whitaker and his people trying to figure out what Noriega is up to. Um, I, I think, yeah, the movie starts out with Arnold in a small town, and then it cuts to Johnny Knoxville and his weapons, his firearms museum, and <laughs> um, which may or may not be utilized sometime later in the film. And uh, two of his deputies are just shooting. It looks like a slab of beef. With, I think uh, it's a pig. Is it a pig? Is it a pig? I, I can't remember. It, it's a okay. dead hanging animal. And they're shooting it with, uh, it looks like a magnum. And the young impressionable guy doesn't think about the recoil. And it just whaps him in the face as soon as and he takes one shot. Just breaks his nose completely like it's gushing blood. Yeah. So, uh, But Arnold takes it. And fires it like a pro, and we have our open. One, one-handed. One-handed. That's. <laughs> yes. And so we know we know this guy is a bona fide badass. Oh yeah. Which we already knew because it's Arnold. So. It's Arnold. Yeah, that that is the image he gives. Um. That is part of his charisma. People uh, often sort of make fun of his acting. You know his accent. You know he always has the same accent in every movie, except Red Heat. He's a Russian cop in that movie. Uh, Although I want to say this, jumping a little bit ahead, this is one of the first movies I can think of where they blatantly address that he is not that as an Austrian man he is not from this small town in, a, in the south because he he does he does gripe at the drug lord that you make foreigners like us look bad. It was was it foreigners or immigrants something like that. So, something but like he that. He does yeah. immigrants specifically say that. So, and it's it's almost always the unaddressed elephant in the room with every movie, you know. He he can be in Jingle on, all the way, and he lives in like some town in Wisconsin, and nobody ever thinks it's strange that like this very Austrian man is among them. Well, I mean, it wasn't always necessary. It, no, I, I'd say it was a bigger deal with Street Fighter and Jean Claude Van Damme oh, well, as the all-American as... guile <laughs> from Belgium, from Brussels. And Jean-Claude Van Damme will get his due for that movie in time. <laughs> yes, he will. I'm sure many but, of our listeners know of that film. Many of our listeners that we may may, may not have, I'm just assuming. So p- people who will listen to us 27 episodes from now <laughs> and go back and go, look how far they've come. <laughs> yes. But, so we, I mean, so after all this, we jump to Forrest Whitaker's FBI team investigating... What 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 is Gabriel Cortez, this drug kingpin, up to? And they they learn that he's got a super fast car, and he's got a hostage, which is one of the uh, the the female FBI agent. That um, who's another smoking hot brunette. 
No, yeah, exactly. Uh, and and she has been kidnapped and is riding in his car with him. And he's got he doesn't just have any car. He has a zero one. Uh, and they don't know this because they have to call in this stringy-haired, burned-out guy named Mitchell. And Mitchell's the one who knows. Mitchell knows about cars. Get Mitchell in here. Mitchell's kind of the Jason Muse of this film. He just completely sticks out. I almost yeah. expected him to have, like, there's, there's there might be a deleted scene of him, like, smoking up before they call him in or something. It It just seems so out of place as an FBI agent. He has no business in an FBI ops room. <laughs> but he, he knows his cars. He does. He yeah. knows that that's a zero one, and that hey, was it a zero one stolen last week? And uh, Forrest Whitaker even calls it the Batmobile. I'm trying to catch mm-hmm. a Batmobile here. And I, or I, uh, earlier in the film, when it runs by a speed radar, they they say some Joker's flying a jet down here. Like it's. I think that, really that's have... the opening. The actual the actual opening scene of the movie, isn't it? Which is probably when the car was stolen. Probably when the car was stolen. Yeah, just to kind of set things up. Um, but they do introduce sort of Forrest Whitaker and the most generic, like, federal badass, kind of like, they're just kind of marching down the hall in their duster jackets, like, we got Noriega, and then he explains to sort of a, a SWAT team, you know, who Noriega is, the Pablo Escobar connection, which is dubious, um, <laughs> Well, he and, does. He does make a lot of crazy faces, and he uses knives. Yeah, and he's so. got like the bad guy long hair and beard. Mm-hmm. Not quite nineties. I would have preferred like Mr. Crisp from uh, Kindergarten Cop, which is just like the <laughs> slick back ponytail. That's that's your classic quintessential nineties villain. But this, it's more of a mullet. Yes. And uh, this leads right into the elaborate and uh, overlong escape sequence that we mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. How, does, how does it does it start out with a giant magnet? Is that the first thing? It, it does. A giant magnet grabs the armored car he's in and pulls him up. And there's a lady on the armored car she's shooting like, machine guns. Yeah, she's and... like an all leather. She's like ninja woman, and she's got like a, an Uzi. And... Meanwhile, Norie- Noriega's in the vehicle breaking guards' necks. Oh yeah, he's like uh, he's going Jason Bourne on everybody. No one can stop him, even though they're armed, and he's handcuffed. That's how badass he is. And then we run into the sequence of they escape because the the drug lords have thought to have hunt, like a dozens of guys in orange tracksuits. Well, this is after they'll zip line to another building. Yes, yes, they have they have their dozens of guys in orange tracksuits all run in different directions, and the cops are all chasing brown guys in orange jumpsuits. <laughs> yeah, they have them kind of set up. It's almost like a, a video game, just respawning. And they end, every time they catch the wrong guy, and then I think that's when uh, Cortez kidnaps our brunette number three, throws her in the car, and off they go. They're driving. They're going. Dri- yeah. But, but instead, we don't stick with that. We stick with Forrest Whitaker interrogating guys in orange jumpsuits. He just sort of talks to the guy, and then there's this whole thing. Where he pretends to be speaking good Spanish, and then he tells him, "Oh, he's speaking terrible Spanish, you jackass." I've been spe- I know English this whole time. You're just jerking me around. You're just jerking me around. Why were you wearing an orange jumpsuit? Because I like the soccer team that has the orange colors on their <laughs> uniforms. Yeah, that was his explanation, and we never have anything that alludes to that ever again. 
it, it it's it would be like you know bringing up the Nolan movies. Like we never have sequences where Batman is asking the Joker how his clown guys got from one place to the other, or you know, like it doesn't matter. It's just we've we we've established that this is how he escaped. We as the audience have the privileged information that the orange guys were all working for Cortez. There's really no need to ever ask this question other than to essentially what these FBI scenes are for, and it's a problem throughout the rest of the movie is they are just there to pad out the script and give it 40 more minutes of runtime. Uh, that is one of my major gripes with the film. It, it felt unnecessary and dragged out in that regard. And during this time, they kind of cut back to Arnold and his town and his deputies, and they, they, they introduce a few other characters. Um, the brunette number two, or brunette number I guess she's number one. Number two is the, the uh, diner waitress. I forgot yes. her name. Uh, but Jamie Alexander is brunette number one. Uh, yes. Sarah Torrance. And we find out she's just had her boy, her former boyfriend locked up. And he is also a former Marine. Uh, war veteran. <laughs> As evidenced by his USMC tattoo, if and, you didn't uh, hear them say it a dozen times. They said it a dozen times, and he has, I think, Semper Fi on his other arm. Just to make doubly sure... You know this guy's for real, <laughs> and uh, he, he's kind—he's of, almost like Dean Martin and uh, Rio Bravo. He's sort of a fallen, a fallen good guy. He's not as good as he used to be. And of course, twerpy, uh, twerpy young cop with stars in his eyes. Coincidentally, his best friend. Yes. The Jerry Lewis to hey, his Dean Martin. Hey, it's a small town. That's right. It's a small town. And. Um, uh, also, we after we also see Peter Stormare up to his bad guy business, and he runs into a farm that he needs. He just needs the property to help set up the bridge he's going to build overnight. And the farm is owned by Harry Dean Stanton. Mm. Sort of a nice little cameo. Uh, some of you might remember Harry Dean Stanton was also in The Avengers. Had a cameo, as, I think, as a rent-a-cop. And, uh, uh, the, well, yeah. I think he confronts uh, Bruce Banner after he falls out of the sky. And he explains to him, you just fell out of the sky. Harry Dean Stanton getting a lot of that, uh, a lot of that quick cameo money. Oh, yeah. I, hopefully it was just like, man, we loved Harry Dean Stanton in the 80s. That guy was great. He's in, uh, he's in Dillinger. Uh, he's, been, he's in a ton of movies. Looking, looking at uh, his IMDb right now, he was also in Seven Psychopaths as Man in Hat this year. So... All right, then. I mean, he's pretty old now, so I don't mind seeing him as a cameo anymore. Yeah. But this this really sets up uh, Peter Stormare and Gabriel Cortez's thing, where they they want to buy this farmer's land so that nobody will know that they're building this bridge. And he offers him a lot of money. And, of course, Harry Dean Stanton is sort of that old boy kind of farmer who just doesn't want anybody on his land. Like, he's he's just going to be like, get the hell off my land. I don't care how much money you got. You can offer me all the pieces of silver. Just get the hell off my land. Yeah, he even he whips out, like, a shotgun and uh, gives a little warning shot. And before you know it, Peter Stormare's henchmen shoot off a, a sniper bullet or something. Or just sni sniper out. just takes him out off of his truck. Sadly, we lose him for the rest of the movie. We do. So and it, it establishes a good pattern for Stormare and... Uh, Cortez, where 
generally speaking, they everyone they meet, they um, they first offer money that and does, then kill. That does come up later in the movie. <laughs> they always want to. They always want to make sure that they've given you an offer you can't refuse, <laughs> which most people tend to refuse, and then they immediately have them killed. It's like, come on, it's a million bucks. Well, not quite. Easy, easy way, hard way. Come on. I mean, obviously, a lot of people have taken the easy way. We just don't see them on camera because they keep referring to like, oh, he's paid off all the right people. We don't see those people necessarily. But That's right. I mean, once Cortez goes, gets back into Mexico, I'm assuming he has that whole country in his pocket. Yeah. And, uh, and that's that's why it's so important to move him at four, at three in the morning in Las Vegas. Like, they, they just need to make sure that he can't get back to Mexico because they'll never catch him again. But they do tell us the reason he is driving in this super speedy car in the first place is, is he just simply loves it or something. Forrest Whitaker has this quick little uh, anecdote about how he grew up loving racing cars or something. He's even got like the little fingerless gloves, driver's drug gloves. So not only is he driving, not only can he drive 200 miles per hour in this car, but he can also do he can also drive it convincingly and not lose control of the vehicle. So um, he has brunette number three in the car with him, and Our, uh, FBI, way, agent. FBI agent brunette number three, and um, I. I Forrest Whitaker has different sort of roadblocks, each of them more useless than the last. <laughs> Helicopter, there's uh, a blockade, but Cortez has already had, I guess, the night before SUV set up and like a snowplow looking thing to sort of ram right through them for him. It's just battering rams and e-blockades they set up. He and... can just kind of summon bad guys wherever he needs them. Like, he just kind of, like, whistles or texts somebody, and they just show up out of the desert, <laughs> ready to go. And uh, he pulls a little, uh, it looks like Ryan Gosling drive stunt, where he starts driving backwards and facing the people chasing him. And that was actually kind of cool. That was it pretty was... cool. That was a good action sequence. Um... But also, we start getting hints here that maybe brunette number three is not, uh, is not as dedicated to the FBI as we thought. She's kind of into it. She's not, he, she, you know, she says, will you just unlock me? And he's like, sure. Like, he'll just un, unhandcuff her. Yeah. Like, yeah. And, uh, I mean, we're, we're doing this. Cortez, Cortez is a badass. No one can stop him. Mm -hmm. Stormare is evil. And, yes. our, and Forrest Whitaker is just frustrated. And our Sheriff Ray Owens, Arnold, is just sort of trying to have a day off. And, uh, and he says that a lot. I'm just trying to have a day off today. He just sort of, he's just sort of kind of sleeping, or he wakes up, or he's talking to the, the young deputy about L.A. Like it's not all what it's cracked up to be. You should enjoy this small town where nothing happens. <laughs> That's right. It's the quiet life. You could steal your best friend's girlfriend. Even he doesn't say that. Yeah. He's in jail. You're not. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 just the life. Like we can tell that Arnold used to be a stone cold badass, but now he's he's kind of gotten older. He's really enjoying just sitting in his rocking chair on his front porch. <laughs> yeah, and in a way, it feels like more meta humor. It's like uh, well, maybe Arnold did enjoy just being away from movies for a while, or just uh, I don't know. Maybe he does feel too old to do them anymore. 
but we'll we'll, we'll we'll get back to that later. Uh, because that's uh that's a that's a sort of a symptom of the recent action movies coming out. Yeah, uh, but more on the plot. Mm-hmm. Or the things that happen, we'll just say. The things that happen. Um, there ends up being sort of a murder investigation about Harry Dean Stanton's former character because he was supposed to deliver milk at the diner that everyone in town goes to. And brunette number two calls Arnold at four in the morning. Yes. Because he didn't bring the milk this morning, and that's unusual. That is unusual. He does it every morning without fail, apparently. Uh, And so we have another sort of drawn-out sequence. I don't know if it was supposed to be suspenseful or not. It didn't quite work as well as it should have. We we also kind of get some humor here though too because of the the ineptitude of Star in His Eyes uh, deputy who wants to like like he's he's checking the doors and ch- checking the windows and she like the and Jamie Alexander just walks up and opens it you know it's yeah she it definitely points out that he's probably not cut out for this work and um, at least they do find his body and we don't have to go through all of that. And then next thing you know, brunette number one and uh, the deputy, the other deputy, the young deputy, mm-hmm. get into a firefight with Peter Stormare's goons. Because they just happen to be doing construction work with huge lights <laughs> out behind this farm. I mean, it, it, miles off. it segues it's, nicely, I guess. I, yeah, it, it does. I don't, I don't want to nitpick too much. Yeah. Um, and, it, and the sequence, and when we get action... Kim Ji Woon's skill with this stuff is as such that it's it is exciting. Like he he shoots the sequences well and keeps them interesting. He does. You can tell what's going on. There's not much in the way of shaky camera, right? Which uh, is a huge plus. Huge plus. And, um, and with these cops, even though we don't know them very well, like we we're we're held in suspense because they're pinned down behind this car. They're out. They're hopelessly outgunned. Uh, I think they just have a couple of pistols, maybe a shotgun, and the bad other, guys have night vision goggles. They have sniper rifles, uh, some sort of assault rifle. Um, yes, uh, also, neither Casey nor myself are firearms experts, so please try to be lenient when we completely say the what the completely say what the wrong gun. Or the wrong gun, or flub any... gun names. Yeah, flub gun names. Exactly. I can't talk. Please, please send in your emails. <laughs> we will hate mail. <laughs> That's right. We will. We will happily make corrections on gun names or names of Asian people, because <laughs> I'm not a linguistics expert. <laughs> However, there is a great website. There is the Internet Movie Firearms Database. Oh. That seems to be very well researched. Um, they might even have an entry for this movie already. But if you type in any sort of movie with guns in it. It will have pictures of it from different scenes, and it'll tell you what the gun is, if it was modified, or if the gun is just complete fantasy. It's pretty well done. Uh, Shoutouts to the people that do that. We will be using them in the future. We'll be. Um, good website to go to. So some sort of assault rifles. They're just horribly outgunned, our two heroes right here. And out of nowhere... Arnold sort of comes in with his uh, SUV, and it looks like a shotgun. And it's actually pretty cool. He kind of takes out a few bad guys and rescues the good guys. But this is this is not before Arnold has sussed out that it was not like a... It wasn't that at the house, the farmer was not killed in a break-in, because they moved his body back into the house. Then, they, then he saw the blood by the tractor, which nobody cleaned up. And so he's like, oh, there's something more to this. 
uses those L.A. cop instincts. That's right. That's right. Oh, this is not before he comes to rescue him that uh, the young starry-eyed deputy is mortally wounded. And he's trying and, to draw and no a one pipe. Is able, yeah, no, and no one is able to help him because the snipers are yeah, they're aimed just, in his They're direction. just pinned down. But Arnold does come to the rescue, and it's actually pretty cool. Yeah, he, he just drives him to the SUV, runs guys down. He's got no qualms about this. And we clearly see this is the one cop in this town that really knows what he's doing. Yes, he's been there, done that, and these bad guys have no idea. That's right. No idea. And uh, Peter Stormare kind of gets pissed off at his henchmen, I think. Mm-hmm. You could then kill them or something like that. Yeah, and we have a daring escape. We have a daring escape, and sadly, we lose a character. Stars in his eyes, uh, signed his own death sentence by dreaming of bigger than this little town. <laughs> and they, they, it's not drawn out too much when he dies. It's uh, The characters we, are we, sad, but we're not sad with them. Jamie Alexander's crying for him, cradling his body. Uh, I think he had about it, five lines in the movie. It's true. But when they bring him back, they bring the body back to the to the sheriff's office where Simplify USMC guy is locked up for the weekend for public intoxication, I think. Um, it is used as the sort of the the moment where he can look at his dead friend and say, guys, I need to be part of whatever's going on. That's right. And uh, finally, Forrest Whitaker, I think, contacts Arnold's town. Tells him what's up. But kind of says, I don't think it's going to be a problem for you guys. Like, just keep an eye out. But they don't, nobody knows about the Peter Stormare's bridge yet. (laughs) I think they're pretty confident that at some point his uh, his blockades might stop the supercar of Cortez. And he kind of tells Arnold to stay out of it. Yes, don't all superiors say that in action movies? And of course, it's always the police captain. Uh, it's, it's an every lethal weapon movie. It's it's just that turn in your badge moment, like, like the, and of course it it also ties into the sort of natural hatred in movies between cops and FBI agents. It uh, the best of which was Die Hard, Special Agent Johnson, Special Agent Johnson, no relation. <laughs> Don't come in. You want to come into our town and tell us how to do our business? And of course, Arnold Arnold's having none of it. He just kind of hangs up on him. Yeah, they've uh, they've successfully now really screwed up his day, and now he's just not gonna have it at all. No. He is just pissed, and um, that that sets up sort of our high noon third act of the film. Mm-hmm. That Arnold has a certain sort of certain deadline to expect the bad guys to show up. Although unlike High Noon, he does get help. Sort of the thing with High Noon is that it's the sheriff of the town cannot get anyone to help him out because bad guys are going to show up and they're like, might as well just get killed. He's got Grace Kelly worrying about him. Um, That's, is that Gary Cooper? That is Gary Cooper. Okay. Um, or as Hans Gruber incorrectly said in Die Hard, John Wayne. Ah. John Wayne does not go riding off into the sunset with Grace Kelly. That was Gary Cooper, asshole. <laughs> says John McClane. Um, there was also a Outland with Sean Connery, sort of a space version of High Noon. Hmm. 
not terrible, actually really entertaining, kind of a forgotten action movie these days, but very solid. And that, and that actually predates Total Recall with the zero pressure, zero gravity, exploding bodies. Oh. And definitely a movie we'll have to get to in a future episode. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. But back to uh, The Last Stand. Yes. And uh, this is kind of the highlight of the film. Absolutely. This this last third is... is it, this is the reason to rent this movie, this last third. Like, if you're going to see it, this is why you see it. Um, it's set up pretty nicely. The good guys uh, enlist the help of the Marine, boy, ex-boyfriend, and Johnny Knoxville, because he has a, the weapon museum, and he's got a whole bunch of sort of old-fashioned, old-timey weapons, and probably a few things that might be illegal, including and, the hand cannon. Uh, yes. A, a Conan the Barbarian style sword. Uh, I think, uh, what is it, Luis Guzman picks up like a mace or something. He's like, you never know. Yeah, he's, they, he just has every kind of weapon you could want. There's there's flare guns, there's Gatling, there's like old-timey Gatling guns, uh, which I think he gives them all names, but I've forgotten what they are. Yeah, like, sadly, I, I can't remember them either. Clearly, I mean, clearly Johnny Knoxville and Louise Guzman are supposed to be our comedy relief characters, but surprisingly, not annoying. Johnny Knoxville could have, I expected him just to make me want to pull my hair out when I watched this movie, going into it. But mm -hmm. he's not that bad. He's, he's, he's just goofy, and he actually has a few one-liners that aren't that bad. They're actually kind of funny. And he's sort of dressed like, uh, with his goggles and his, his hats... He sort of dressed like the weird in Ji Woon's earlier film, The Good, The Bad, and The Weird. Yeah, it's like that uh, pilot sort of hat. Yeah, he's he's I mean he he's dressed I mean more or less spends most of the movie in a bathrobe and like shorts and stuff. But yeah, but, but we... there's a kind of weird scene where he has to take down a uh, it's like a power power lines oh. or something. They're setting up their own roadblocks uh, yeah. in the, on the one street in town using, like, school buses and cars and, yeah. He, he pulls down a power uh, line using only his body. They do make some nice makeshift uh, blockades of the school buses, and they even drive one, too. Um, and the, the highlight of the Weapons Museum sequence, too, is that it sort of takes place of the typical training montage, and that we just sort of see everyone arming themselves to the teeth with all these different kinds of guns and melee weapons and things that they could conceivably use to stop an army. Yeah. Uh, brunette number one gets like a, looks like a sniper rifle, and she gets on top of a roof to pick uh, bad guys off. Um, and Luis Guzman is kind of the first line of defense. He has like a Tommy gun. Yeah. And uh, I think he shows up kind of by himself. And then Peter Storbear walks in very Western style. And he has like an, a really old timey Remington revolver. I think, I think it's a Remington. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty cool looking actually. And then he has and, uh... his bad guys and their commando gear kind of scattering about. And you have this pretty nice shootout that takes up the whole small town. But we also have a lot of comedy relief scenes intertwined with, 
like the the people in the diner are going, "We're not leaving town. We don't care what's going on. We're going to go about our day." And and Arnold getting flung through some glass at one point, and you know, going, "How do you feel, Sheriff?" And he just kind of says, "Old," and shakes it off and walks back into the battlefield. That, that was the one scene that was just kind of played over and over on TV. Yeah, that's that's the TV spot right there. That's that's and. Sadly, that's kind of his best catchphrase. One of his best catchphrases and only ones in the movie. He yeah. does, it's not like Predator where he has like a million memorable lines. He's very devoid of quips. Yeah. Um. And uh, but back to the the shootout. Uh, it's very well shot. Um, it doesn't look like it uses much in the way of CG. Um, it has pretty nice little blood squib effects. And Jiwoon, I think, is a big fan of using ones that sort of make a, a mist, a bloody sort of mist. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, he did that a lot in Bittersweet Life, especially. And The Good, The Bad, and The Weird. So, uh, yeah. yeah, so he, he he definitely doesn't prefer the splattery ones that you might see in Django Unchained, for example. He, he really likes ones that you get hit and, like, a blood fog comes out of you. It just mists out and sort of dissipates in the air. Yeah, it, it's a unique effect. Um, and a really nice one too. It is a really nice effect. Uh, and this is kind of where his sort of really strong style shines through in the movie more than any other point in the film is the shootout scene. Um, the whole town kind of gets in on it too. There, there's even like an old lady in what looks like a, a pawn shop or something. One of the bad guys sort of walks through and he, He's, he's like, shut up, bitch. And then the very next shot is him getting blasted through some glass by a shotgun the old lady was packing. And Arnold sort of winkingly acknowledging that this badass old lady has just obliterated this guy. Like, thanks, you know. It's... Yeah. Um, there's a pretty cool little a brief shootout with a guy with like a dual pistols and the Marine and brunette number one are sort of firing back at him. I like sort of the, the close quarters of that. It was close quarters, but it it wasn't. It didn't feel constrained or something. No, it right. Felt, it, was, it felt kind of was, realistic too. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, it was like kind of up a flight of stairs. Yeah, it was like a flight of stairs, and one of them is sort of on the same level as him, but has his back to like the wall. He's kind of just peering around to shoot, even though the bullets probably would have gone right through the wall if the bad guy really wanted. We us. We also get a cool sequence during this uh, involving the old-timey Gatling gun, uh, which is planted in the back of a school bus, driven into the middle of the battlefield, and fired off by Johnny Knoxville, who obliterates like at least half of the mercenary crew. I think he's feeding the bullets, and Arnold's the one... Oh, shooting, yeah. Shooting. It's the picture on the poster. Yeah. And, and, that and it really works. Cool. That was pretty cool. Um... Knoxville, by the way, getting, in my opinion, the coolest death in the movie. Uh, not, I mean, coolest kill, rather. He doesn't, you know, he's mostly fine. Um, but he fires a flare gun off at a guy who has an ammo belt around his shoulders. Yeah, it's all shotgun shells. And and they all sort of pop like fireworks until the upper torso of his body just blows off <laughs> of the rest of him. It's It's pretty spectacular. It was pretty cool. The only thing that's left is his lower half. And it just sort of <laughs> slumps over. It was a surprising little bit of gore. But nice to see. Nice to see in this movie. Which leaves us with uh, the confrontation between 
Arnold and Peter Stormare. Yes, uh, bad. I guess he's uh, the number two bad guy in the movie. I thought he was going to be the number one bad guy actually going into this. Mm-hmm. But I like that there were sort of two main villains. Yes. Or uh, the sub boss, the Goro to the Shang Tsung, if you will, the Sagat <laughs> to the M Bison. Um, and then they sort of have a, a little, looks like a little duel inside of the school bus. And I think Arnold sort of takes him out at point blank range. Like it's like right between the eyes, I think. Yes. And and uh, was it? I I can't remember. Was it dead center or a little to the side? Mm. Maybe it was a little to the side, and I mean I can't exactly remember. But that is it's something just... I, I I sort of don't like seeing in action movies is when somebody gets shot in the head in a movie. It's always right between the eyes, and it's a little you know, the little red dot. It 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 just takes it detracts from the realism just slightly if it. I mean, this isn't a movie any of us would go into to see for the realism. Correct, correct. But but it's like a cliche that's done so frequently. You're like, come on, just uh, at least vary it, vary it a little bit, you know. And so, and you know. To, to this movie's credit, there is there is quite a bit of innovation in how characters die compared to the average action movie. So there is, there is, uh, which leads to Arnold and. Uh, Cortez having their showdown, which is pretty cool in itself. Um, yeah. Cortez shows up in his supercar. Still with the FBI lady in tow. Yes. And uh, he kicks her out of the car. Like, but, not, not, but not because... Uh, this is this is one of the frustrating things about this. Like th- This little bit of business frustrated me because it's he doesn't kick her out for any real reason other than to make her apparent deception in helping him get out look good. But I, I really I really thought that character was going to be dead. Like, he's he's moving at full speed. Yeah, I mean, if you're going 70 miles an hour at least or something, and then you knock somebody out of the car, you're going to hit the ground 70 miles an hour. Yeah, but whatever. Minor nitpick. Yeah. So, but this, I mean, Arnold can't stop this unstoppable car. No, so he he steals one of the, the illegally parked car from the beginning of the movie. I don't I don't remember what kind of car it was. It's a, was it like a Corvette some, or something? Some like red sports car that so that has some horse, some muscle to it. A horse something car. something a prickish character would drive and throw the keys to a sheriff. You know, it's yeah. And uh, they end up having like a really unique, actually chase through a cornfield uh it was re- it was really well done i it's like stealth it's like a stealth car chase and we'd, we'd sometimes get aerial views of the cars like ripping tracks through the cornfields yeah. and that was, or, or like interior views of the corn cobs hitting the windshield yeah that was another thing with uh, kim ji woon's direction that was very strong about this scene you always knew kind of where the characters were in relation to each other even though they may not have you got a good yeah. idea of the space, so it it does a lot for the suspense. And it, it helps in a, it helps in a car chase to know where the cars are in physical space. Yeah, because in the in the movie, uh, I think Cortez sort of has the lead, and when they're just driving the car through the cornfields, it just knocks down the corn that's right in front of them. Mm-hmm. You can't you have no peripheral vision basically, 
and I guess their engines are too loud for them to, to really hear. And uh, Arnold sort of goes in there, and he just slams right into them, and they just kind of battle back and forth, and then they separate again. Yeah, and I love the way the corn just sort of hits the windows, and that was that was really solid. It's very unique, and I mean, and also this. I mean, this is our way of getting away from the cars ultimately, because uh, Cortez. Chris's car slams into an errant tractor that's just parked at the, at the edge of the cornfield. I was actually expecting Arnold to use that to chop the guy up with. Mm. That, that would have been more old school Arnold something to do. Yeah. Or, uh, I guess, Stallone. Any period Stallone. Um, but but instead we have we have Cortez running on foot a little a little you know a little jaggedly because he's just gotten into a big car crash, and he. And he, he's hitting the bridge, and who should be there but Schwarzenegger already awaiting him with a pair of handcuffs in his hand. Yeah, and that, it was this kind of hokey-looking uh, green screen bridge. The, the bridge they're on, I guess, it's whatever the set is, and, and then everything around them been, is very it, much green screen. It probably would have been very expensive to build the uh, the bridge over an actual canyon. <laughs> probably, and maybe they just wanted the, an ability to be able to shoot as frequently as they want it without having to worry about the light, you know. Yeah. I, I understand the idea of the controlled environment. And it, it's not, it's still, it's believable enough for the movie's purposes. I mean, we all would have preferred a real set. Sure. But, uh, I mean, Arnold, I guess he's pushing 70. You know, maybe not and, the best idea. But, but that's what's surprising about this sequence. We have Arnold pushing 70 in a really convincing fight sequence. It does lead to a pretty cool fight scene, uh, and it is the last stand. Mm-hmm. Uh, before Cortez just only has, what, a few yards to go to cross the border. And I do love that it is Arnold right between them. And, and of course, he does the same thing Stormare did with the farmer, where he's, you know, he, he, he offers Schwarzenegger increasing increments of money. Yeah, I think he even has his cell phone, and he calls up his accountant right away. Yes. <laughs> Like how much do you want? Five million, something like that. I can, I can, I can have ten million in your account tonight. But Arnold is a man of principles, and right. he's not going to have that crap. He's he's asking him what he wants, and Arnold keeps jangling those handcuffs. You know, he's this is what I want. So they kind of they fight, and then Arnold, then they take off their coats, and then they fight some more, and it's a really well done, brutal fight. Uh, it, it's a brawl. I mean, and it's they, a it's a really cool clash of styles too. Yeah, they do some nice throws and takedowns and sort of jujitsu looking moves, and uh, I think uh, maybe even like an armbar at one point. It's 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 really watching Arnold as like a mixed martial arts style heavyweight fight a really speedy lightweight. Yeah. And, so, and they really play to that. They play to they play to Arnold's power overcoming and. <laughs> And uh, it's actually pretty funny because Cortez seems to have the upper hand. He's like, you should have taken the money. And then Arnold starts to get the upper hand. Then he goes, 10 million. <laughs> he's, yeah, he just keeps upping the price. Like, like he, is, he is bleeding and he is so desperate to cross this bridge. Like, you know what? My pride. Fuck it. I don't have any pride. Just let me cross the bridge. I, I really like that. That was, uh, that was pretty funny. Because normally... It, it made- Oh, oh, sorry. Uh, normally, in a fight scene like this, they'll just fight. Maybe they kind of grunt at each other, say like "you piece of crap," blah blah blah. 
and then the fight's over. I do like that there's that kind of banter. There, There is some banter, and it it did a lot to help characterize Cortez, who up to this point has just been guy in a car. Yeah. Like, this is this is a sort of, like, chicken shit villain who has has traditionally just paid off the right people to get through situations in life. And that's kind of how he goes about it, yeah. Um, and it and, has... Oh, oh, we have, uh, he has that cool little sort of, I don't, I don't, it's kind of like capoeira or, like, breakdancing with his knife. Where he's constantly like twirling and trying to cut at Arnold's ankles and yeah, uh, he gets a couple slashes in and it has uh, also some pretty great lines. It's uh, and Cortez goes, "You fucked up my car," and then Arnold goes, "You fucked up my day off." <laughs> and that's really the whole principle of this movie. That's the point. You do not fuck up a man's day off. And he's he's too old for this shit. He's too old for he... it. And the tagline, of course, for this movie, retirement is for sissies. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, and naturally, of course, Arnold ultimately gets the upper hand. Yeah. Puts Cortez in handcuffs. He, he, uh, he handcuffs him, and then he sort of, like, drives the car back, but he's, like, towing Cortez behind. He's making him walk. <laughs> he's got, like, a big black eye or something. He's all torn up. Bleeding from the mouth a little yeah. bit. Yeah. <laughs> And that's, of course, when Forrest Whitaker's FBI shows up, because they looked on a satellite and said, oh, man, there's a bridge. <laughs> but wait, wait. The, movie has, the movie has to waste a few more minutes in restating the obvious, so FBI brunette walks back onto the scene, only to get arrested by Forrest Whitaker, who informs the two members of the audience that did not know that she was in, le- in cahoots with Cortez. They, they figured it out, they knew it all along, and now she is going to go to jail with Cortez. Womp womp, and then they, I think they we see them drive off in the armored car together, without their magnets. That's right. Zip lines. Presumably, having exhausted his resources for t- for the time being. <laughs> maybe he, maybe he'll start screaming to the driver. Ten million. Yeah, we know he's got at least ten million in the bank. He, can, he still can, he can still make it across. So, but you know, uh, with the movie opening. At number nine, it's unlikely that we're going to get the last stand, too, so. Yeah. Uh, I, I hope not. Um, the movie actually had a small budget compared to, compared to a lot of modern action movies. I think it was like $30 million or something, which is peanuts. And probably most of which went to Arnold's salary. Probably. It wasn't like a big-scale action movie, and that's one thing I do appreciate. They didn't have to make it like Terminator 3, where he just wrecks like all these buildings and there's this crane chase as cool as that is i like that it was something more scaled back and kind of what he did in the 80s so a movie like like, raw deal i like that it sort of builds up to exactly what is in the title it builds up to the last stand and the last stand itself is spectacular it's the whole reason to watch it yeah it uh it delivers the goods delivers what it promises that's right and and how often can you say that about a lot of action movies anymore that come out in this modern era I mean, not too frequently. Um, there's a couple. Oh, last last year was a good year for them, though. Last year was great. Uh, the raid being the uh, undisputed champion of last year, as far as action really... movies go. We'll Absolutely. get to we'll get to that one. We'll, we will gush about that movie. We'll probably talk about all of all of those movies uh, by that cast and crew. Yeah. Uh, so. Whenever the raid two comes out, allegedly this year, 
um, we will definitely talk about it. That'll be that'll probably be a day one Friday night podcast. So, but is this a but going back to the last stand? Is this a movie you would want to buy? Is it a movie you have to go see midnight show? Is it a matinee movie? I I saw it in the theater, and I I mean I paid I paid day one price for it, and same I here, didn't same here. I I didn't feel like I was ripped off. Like I felt like for 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 what I came for, which was really that last third. I feel like I got my money's worth, but to anyone else, I'd kind of just say rent it. Yeah, it, it's a it's a future net Netflix, I think, for a lot of folks. And and speaking of which, you can watch all of this director's other movies, well, most of them anyway, on Netflix currently. So yes, go look up uh, Kim Ji Woon's movies. All easy to recommend. Um, but I want to talk about. Something in we as we said we'd get back to this and this is something that happens in this movie and it's something that happened in all of the trailers before this movie, which is there's a very real like motion towards sort of the graying of the action star like it's there's a lot of attention being paid to how old these guys are now. Yeah, Arnold and Sly are approaching their seventies. Just a fact of life. Um... I mean, the trailer. I don't. I don't know about you, but the trailers I had in front of this were, you know, Sylvester uh, Stallone's bullet to the head, where he is a, he is a guy that wants to retire, but he can't yet because someone's kidnapped his daughter. Um, there was Red Two. Red Two, which is you know a movie built around retired, as uh, like CIA super agents or something. And... Uh, there was a good day to die hard, which is about Bruce Willis passing the torch to his son, more or less. Who was also a CIA agent. That's right. <laughs> they love passing that uh, profession around. They do. They do. And it's I... just a mantle to be given. Yeah. It's like uh, when I see trailers and they say, "See's ex special forces." And, and and you know even in this movie there's. There's two examples of, like, Arnold keeps talking about how old he is, and he just wants to, like, settle down in this little town. And then we also have the old lady that obliterates a guy with a shotgun. Like, it's... Yeah. It's it's kind of like the... The topography of action movies is... It hasn't really evolved past these old men. Yeah, I mean, uh, is there anybody out there right now, action star-wise, that's going to be able to fill their shoes? I mean, there there are certainly there? guys, there are certainly guys in like the direct to video market that are doing really well, but they're not they're not guys that are going to be headlining like huge Hollywood films. Yeah, who do we have right now? I mean, there's Jason Statham, and sure. he's he's been doing his shtick for about a little over ten years now, and he just had Parker come out. Then last year it was Safe, and, and he'll be around for a while. He's he he maintains his popularity. Somehow. <laughs> Somehow. He, he has a formula, and he sticks to it. He always, people, he even people looks are... like he wears the same clothes in every movie. <laughs> it's like a disheveled black suit and a white shirt. And he's one of those action stars that I think appeals to both men and women. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, we have, we have Daniel Craig doing Bond movies, but that's a guy who's kind of up there in age, too. It's... Yeah, uh, both of these men... Uh, Statham and Daniel Craig. I think they're in their mid forties now. Maybe early fifties. You know, it's hard to say. It, it is hard to say. Um, I mean, Daniel Craig. I think he'll be doing Bond 
for at least two more movies. That's what I suspect. And that's and that's really going to be his only action output, probably. Probably. Uh, has he done anything else actiony? I mean, they're kind of giving us. They're kind of giving us Jeremy Renner lately. Jeremy Renner. Um, he's still not. He's not. He's no Stallone, though. I mean, no. I mean, Tom Cruise has been on an action kick for a while now. now I and, actually prefer to see him as more of an actor, actor. Than see but him Mission Impossible, Mission Impossible Four, a great movie. It was a great movie. Um, I even like the Brian De Palma one, the first one. Mm-hmm. The John Woo one was very silly, but it had its moments. Uh... And I haven't seen the J.J. Abrams one. J.J. Abrams will... one was okay. It was a little too shaky cam for me. Gotcha. Well, I, I will rectify this, because at some point we'll inevitably do like a Mission Impossible series. That is an interesting series, and uh, like we just indicated, it has four very different directors with their take on it. Uh, Brad Bird doing the most recent one, and probably the best one. Yes. Um... But, I mean, Tom Cruise did uh, Minority Report. That was a great movie. But he has, like, uh, the post-apocalyptic film he's doing. But still, I mean, in that case, like, that's still Tom Cruise. Like, Tom Cruise can do any movie he wants, and he's not going to be, like, the action guy. He's just going to be Tom Cruise. That's true. Um, I mean, there's there's also Will Smith. But I don't think of Will Smith as an action guy either, even though he starred in a ton of them. And then, of course, we have a lot lot of smaller guys. Like, uh, I mean, we have... Scott Adkins and Michael Jai White, who's doing stuff like Black Dynamite lately, but like those aren't guys that are gonna, you know, in spite of their enormous talents, are never gonna be like headliners. Yeah, Michael J. White had he had Spawn. He had Spawn, and that was just that was not the right movie, I guess, to star in. I don't think anybody could have made that movie really good. And he he's he's making his movie on like he's making his money on like Tyler Perry productions lately and stuff so you know he's he's set. Yeah, and uh, I think it was an undisputed two and three. Um, with Adkins. With Adkins, yeah, Scott Adkins is pretty cool. Uh, but those are like these direct-to-video movies, and no one knows who that guy is. And I mean, of course, we we we're always gonna have like a lot of you know newer action guys and uh, the Asia you know in Asia like. You know, we mentioned Lee byun Hyun earlier. There's also Iko Owais from The Raid. Oh, who's... yeah. And he's a great, like, sort of... He's probably the youngest, among the youngest we've mentioned here, but he was just fantastic in that movie. His skills, and uh, he had a lot of personality. Um, there's Tony Jaa, Thailand. And, and for a while, it seemed like Tony Jaa was going to be the new guy. But It, it did. Um, he had sort of a weird moment where he ran off and his dad said he was possessed by witches or something. I, I could have this story completely wrong, but it was something sure. very weird how he allegedly went crazy during the filming of Umbach 2, I want to say. And there's all, the, there's all these, like, contradictory reports. Like, uh, he might have been involved with, like, money with the Taiwanese mafia that he had to run away from. And, like, it's just, there's... But he's a guy who shot himself in the foot for, for non-movie reasons. Yeah, and he's... a. Uh, hell is Tony. He's probably he's he's in his late thirties now. I mean, he's not gonna do anything again, probably as spectacular as Ungbok or uh, uh, the Protector or Tumyung Gung, is if you want to say the Thai title to it. Both of those are fantastic. We'll talk about them later. But he he was kind of the guy I was expecting to take the Jackie Chan Jet Li torch, mm-hmm. passed down from Bruce Lee. There's an, there's another guy who's kind of coming up lately, uh, Marco Zoror from Chile. Uh, um, what was? 
He was in he was in a movie called Mandrill. Uh, he was also in Undisputed with Adkins. That is right. That's true. He was and he's it. going he's going to get his uh he's going to get a role in Machete Kills. Uh, Danny Trejo, but Danny, Danny Trejo is he's in his sixties too, I believe. And Danny Trejo is Danny Trejo, like you know, it's <laughs> he, he was never like. I think Machete was his first sort of leading role. Otherwise, he was otherwise he was like the tough guy that was just that would just pop up in Robert Rodriguez's movies. And he's a great character actor. I mean, like there's there's plenty of reasons to love him. Oh yeah. But I mean, like even the casts of most Tarantino movies are not action stars. Like they are they are regular stars put into action roles. Uh yeah, Jamie Foxx or Brad Pitt. I don't think of either of those guys as an Arnold. Or even like. Or even like Christoph Waltz or Uma Thurman, you know, like these are people who are just who do a lot of other roles, but for Tarantino, will do action. Tarantino does his. It, it, I like what he does. He he does cast people, either not really known at all in America, or they've just been completely forgotten. Or we'll cast them against type, uh, like like Leonardo DiCaprio playing a horrible slave owner when he's when he's been a heartthrob for so many years before yeah uh he was the original choice to play hans landa in inglorious bastards but i i I like the decision tarantino made to get german-speaking actors for the german roles in that movie but i I guess this is this is kind of going to be a thing that we're going to have to think about for a long time i mean like we have to sort of figure out who are the new guys and and i think i i mean i think the country's kind of trying to figure that out too i mean Bullet to the Head and The Last Stand did abysmally at the box office. Uh, Good Day to Die Hard is doing well, but that's because it's a part of a series. Uh, like people, lo- people love the character. Yeah, and we want to hear Yippie Kaye. We want to hear that. And I think you've mentioned to me in conversation before, like super the 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 love that we had for these action stars have kind of been replaced by the love we have for superhero actors now. Yeah, uh, superhero movies have sort of replaced certain action movies. I mean, it's it's kind of like how uh, there's been certain waves of action films for until, I guess, through the seven, I guess through the 60s, it was kind of when the westerns really started to die out. And then those were sort of replaced with more contemporary sort of action movies, and that lasted for a long time. And then we had our high-concept ones. Like, the 70s were kind of the dawn of Bruce Lee and a lot of those guys. And uh, it led, Yeah, it led to sort of a, at least a brief martial arts craze in this country, in the U.S. Um, and then the 90s, we had more of our high-concept ones, like Speed. Uh, sure. so, some that the are Matrix. more... Yeah, The Matrix. You know, these... Yeah, Keanu Reeves. Um... Keanu Reeves vehicles, like Reeves was the guy for that. <laughs> Keanu Reeves was in is in three great action movies. We just mentioned two of them. The other one was Point Break, you know. And now he's going to be in Forty Seven Ronin, so we'll see how that goes. We'll see how that goes. I mean, he has three really good titles from the '90s to his name. Nothing to be ashamed but, of. But I mean, that's definitely something that, like, philosophically, we're going to have to just keep thinking about as we go ahead with this podcast. Yeah, I mean, there's The Rock. But he, I feel like he's been consistently disappointing to me. The Rock has, The Rock never lived up to his action movie potential. Yeah, I mean, uh, as far as women go, there was Angelina Jolie, but I never liked any of the movies she was in, mm-hmm. especially the action ones. Tomb Raider, those, those are just terrible. 
I mean, this, we have we have we have Gina Carano. There is but hope in Gina. And uh, Haywire was very good. wasn't great. There's really only two really good fight scenes in that movie. I thought it was a. I thought it was really dry in spots, though. It is very dry, and she's not the most charismatic woman ever. I mean, that's a very. That's one of her first movies. I think she'll mature more as an actress and kind of get the cam, kind of mug up the camera in a good way. And for all of Steven Soderbergh's qualities of, as a filmmaker, I don't. He's not necessarily an action filmmaker. He's not, but um, he did let sort of the camera just let it. He pulled it back, mm-hmm. and we could just kind of see Gina's physicality, which is sure. just terrific. I think I just want to see Gina fight people that aren't you and McGregor. Yeah, like I don't I didn't see him putting up a fight with her in the first place. Or even maybe Michael Fassbender. Channing Tatum I guess would match her physically. Oh, was it Fassbender at the end of the movie? <laughs> it was Ewan McGregor. It was Fassbender okay. in the hotel room. That was one of the okay. that was kind of the okay. highlight of that movie. Sure. Because he did put up a really good fight. Uh, Fassbender, terrific actor. Not an action guy, though. But but again, you know, with as we as we said with Tarantino, you don't necessarily have to be to be an action movie guy anymore. Oh, not anymore, no. Um, because I, I think that the the idea of the not ne- not just the ultra muscular, but like the burly action star, I think that's kind of out of style. It is because when you get that. Uh, you have sort of your joke movies now. You have The Tooth Fairy. You have that one with Triple H, where he's like, oh, God, what the hell? What was that called? It was like uh, Chaperone or so, Bus Stop or bus something? Bus Stop. It looked terrible. It, it it was in the vein of Kindergarten Cop. It, I think that's sort of a subgenre of the burly action star Arnold started, but now that's kind of the only way a lot of audiences can look at these guys. It's like it's a big joke to them. Well, and and I think I think now anymore we we don't really care if the actor in the movie can actually do any of the things they're doing, like because you know like we go to superhero movies and we accept that most of what they're doing is CGI work. Yeah, we're we're just so comfortable with it. Um, I saw the trailer for the new Iron Man and just the sort of the abundance of the CG just bothered me. It looked so cartoony to me. But, you know, we'll 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 figure this out. I mean, we're gonna maybe that's maybe that's another reason to do this is just to sort of hunt for some new names and some new blood out there, and and, and also but also you know respect and honor the old guard, the people that really made the genre that we love possible. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing we would like to bring people with this podcast is um not ne- not just like nostalgia, but what made these movies so great, what makes them so memorable. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, so we're going to, I mean, we thank you for joining us today. And uh, we can make you one promise. We will get better. We will get better. Um, This is our trial run. And hopefully uh, you guys thought it was pretty good. I thought we did okay. It was enjoyable. It was enjoyable. I had a good time. I I had fun talking with you. I don't know if anybody's going to enjoy listening to it, but I had a lot of fun. Why wouldn't they? Um, Yeah. Talking about action movies, everyone loves action movies, whether they like it or not. I like to admit it. That's right. Um, uh, hopefully soon, we will we will bring you another movie. And doing and be discussion. doing this on a pretty consistent basis. Yes. Uh, that is the plan. 
and we hope you enjoyed it. This is Bert, Bert and Cody signing off. This is Casey Mitchum signing off. Thanks, guys.